Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Campaign donations may complicate today's midway rising vote at the city council. There's a lot of questions surrounding this. Uh, it's, a, it's a big project, one of the city's biggest in history. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Compassion, persistence, and patience. All three are needed by San Diego's homeless outreach workers. Watching somebody move into housing after 20 or 30 years on the street, seeing that happen is a pretty amazing experience. There's often a long wait for kids to get mental health care at schools and a report on stem cell research in space. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Mayor Todd Gloria's top pick for the sports arena redevelopment will be considered by the full city council today. The Midway Rising proposal contains the largest number of affordable housing units on the 48-acre site, in addition to retail, open space, and a new sports arena. But recent information has shown that the head of the top development company in the Midway Rising plan made significant contributions in support of Mayor Gloria's 2020 mayoral election. The report says Zephyr Partners owner Brad Termini and his wife Stephanie donated more than $100,000 to the cause. Critics of the Midway Rising plan are alleging connections between the donations and the selection. And joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jeff McDonald. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hello, Maureen. Thanks for having me. So how and when were these campaign contributions made? Presumably by check, but they were made in 2019 and 2020 in the uh, months before the uh, mayoral election that uh, Mr. Gloria won. And they weren't given directly to the mayor's campaign, is that right? 
Well, they did. Uh, Apple did give directly to the campaign, but campaign limits limit uh, the amount you can give there. The big donations, $50,000 each, were made to a, a independent expenditure committee that the mayor's office, of course, points out it has no control over. But uh, it, it is a political committee that was dedicated to electing Todd Gloria mayor. And those were the two single largest personal donations given to this committee toward Gloria's election. Is that right? Yes, they were. Uh, they were the largest. Uh, there were some unions that gave a little bit more, but uh, unions give money to campaigns all the time. So that's not that unusual. What do we know about Zephyr Partners and its owner, Brad Termini? Well, it's a uh, North County uh, company. Uh, they live in uh, Encinitas. The company's based up there. They built a number of smaller projects across the region. Uh, nice projects by all measures. Successful, I suppose but nothing to the uh, scale or scope of uh, the Midway Rising project. They've, uh, I think, completed just less than uh, 600 housing units uh, by themselves. They also have a history of uh, entitling properties and then selling them to other builders. So a lot of the projects they've been involved with, they haven't actually followed through and constructed. Once you secure the entitlements, the value of the property goes way up, of course, and uh, you can just cash out and sell to somebody else who will develop the actual uh, buildings. Uh, so Zephyr has done that a number of times. And, and they have been apparently sued repeatedly. Did Zephyr disclose its litigation history to the city? Not apparently, no. Every company gets sued from time to time. So that's not all that unusual. I did think that it was notable that they did not disclose the litigation history. The city's answer was that uh, they were only required to disclose the past seven years worth. But it does speak to a company's business practices when they're repeatedly sued for breach of contract or failing to pay vendors or or whatnot. So uh, I think any reasonable person would say that's something of a red flag. Now, the city's Land Use and Housing Committee approved the selection of Midway Rising last week. Were concerns about Zephyr and its donations to Mayor Gloria brought up? Uh, Yes, a number of speakers uh, spoke against the recommendation from staff, which was to, of course, uh, forward the the Midway Rising proposal onto the city council, uh, which was approved and will be heard this afternoon at... uh, at the city council uh, meeting, they did raise concerns not only of the political donations, but the litigation history, the lack of experience, the haste with which this project is moving forward. There's a lot of questions surrounding this. Uh, it's, it's a big project, one of the city's biggest in history, almost 50 acres that would be completely remade. Now, in your report, you say concern over this redevelopment process is heightened by the bad real estate deal the city entered into with the Ash Street building. What's the connection? Well, the connection is the city of San Diego. Uh, this uh, this city has a, a history of questionable real estate dealings, not just with Ash Street, which, of course, uh, you guys know uh, the city agreed to pay $132 million in July to settle some lawsuits over this building that cannot be safely occupied. It's the 19-story former Sempra headquarters, 101 Ash. But this city has a a long history of, you know, questionable real estate deals. So the trust that the city has with a number of constituents is um, hugely tested. uh, And that's one of the driving forces behind the calls to slow down this process to make sure the city gets it right this time. 
Now, as you pointed out, it wasn't just Mayor Gloria, but city staff and now a city council committee that have chosen Midway Rising out of the three finalists for the redevelopment. So what is the mayor's office saying about any connection between the selection of Midway Rising and campaign contributions? Uh, the mayor's office said there's no connection, whatever. Uh, absolutely no connection, which uh, you know is understandable. They uh, they solicit donations from all comers, as every politician does. I mean, that's the uh, system uh, we have here in the United States, uh, where campaign contributions can be considered free speech. The mayor's position is that uh, the donations he accepts and the donations made to his efforts to be elected have no bearing on his uh, policymaking. So. Uh, you know, we all hope that's the case. And uh, and there you go. So the full city council is scheduled to vote on this redevelopment today. What do you think we should expect? Will we get lots of public testimony, criticism of Midway Rising from rival developers, that sort of thing? Probably. Yes, yes. And, and yes. Remember, this is only a, uh, a suggestion that the Midway Rising enter into exclusive negotiations. Uh, they'll have up to two years to hammer out an actual development plan for the acreage. It's about 48 acres. Uh, so this is the start of the process. This is not a building permit consideration before the council today or even a, uh, a ground lease. But it is uh, obviously the inside track for this company. And we'll see how it moves forward. Does the selection of Midway Rising seem in jeopardy because of these recent revelations about campaign donations? No, I think that this uh, exclusive negotiating agreement has the needed votes on the council that would be required to move it forward. I I don't expect it'll be rejected. Uh, As I said to somebody else uh, last week, if this council, a majority of them, was willing to approve the Ash Street settlement months ahead of a uh, trial that the city attorney recommended they'd not approve, uh, they're certainly going to go forward with the mayor's recommendation today. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jeff McDonald. And Jeff, thanks. Hey, thank you. Have a great day. In an effort to house an increasing number of unsheltered people in San Diego, the city is trying to address the issue on multiple fronts. It's working on everything from plans for more affordable housing to a new conservatorship unit to force severely mentally ill people into care. And one key element of the city's strategy to address homelessness is its $4.6 million outreach program. The efforts of San Diego's homeless outreach workers are profiled in a San Diego Union-Tribune report. It's a job that takes compassion, persistence, and patience to convince a sometimes reluctant population that there is a better life for them off the streets. Joining me is Nate Dressel, an Outreach Program Manager with People Assisting the Homeless, or PATH. And Nate, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Happy to be here. What would you say the primary objective of your outreach program is? Is it to count people, to get people off the streets, to establish a relationship with them? Our end goal really is to get people into permanent housing. In order to do that, it really does require establishing a relationship. A lot of folks who are living on the street, you know, they may have been working with providers in the past. You know, they may have lost trust in the system. And we're here to meet people where they're at, develop a relationship with them. And in the end, we're really aiming to get them into a permanent housing placement. And how do you work? Uh, In other words, do outreach workers go out alone or in groups? 
a lot of times we will go out alone. In fact, a, a lot of our team, um, they kind of take ownership in a way of a neighborhood. So we'll have somebody in, say, Balboa Park or Ocean Beach or even downtown San Diego working with a specific community of people. And occasionally we do work in pairs. Sometimes it does help to have a couple of people tackling an issue. But generally we do go out alone. Do you carry supplies with you that you can hand out to people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we carry um, food. Water is super, super important in the summertime. Hygiene kits. We'll also carry uh, Narcan on us just in case we happen to run into a situation where somebody may be uh, overdosing on heroin or fentanyl. Then many uh, first aid kits, we also will carry those. So it depends on the need, but we are definitely well stocked when we go out. How do you approach the people that you meet? I think upon first meeting, you know, just introducing ourselves and kind of letting them know where we're coming from. It's more of a conversation at first. It's kind of like, hey, how are you? How's it going? How's your day been? My name is so-and-so. You know, I work for PATH. Have you ever heard of us? And just kind of get a conversation going. And then, you know, we're going to come back day after day to the same spots, talk to the same people. They're going to see us doing that work. And They might see us getting their friends into housing, into shelter. Some people that might be reluctant to work with us can kind of see us in action and see us model that. And that's when that kind of trust begins. What kinds of living conditions do you find unsheltered people existing in? You know, the sad part is, I think, is that often we find seniors and those uh, with severe disabilities living on the street and really no way to care for themselves. And that's our target population is the people that are most vulnerable. And there's a lot of them out there. And sometimes, you know, they're relying on the rest of the encampment around them just to live and transitioning from that situation into housing. It takes a lot of work. And we've got to be sure that they're ready, you know, once they move in and they're set up with people that can care for them. But, you know, those are the kind of situations we see when we're on the street. This city has been conducting regular sweeps of homeless encampments, and some of the people who live there are saying that their possessions are often thrown away. Have you run into those situations? Yeah, it's quite common. It's unfortunate. It really is, because sometimes those possessions can include things like medication, It can also uh, affect people's documentation, which is pretty important when you're moving into housing. You need to be able to provide documentation that vouches for who you are. That's part of what we're doing, I think, as an organization is we're trying to come in and and help people with that. We're going to keep those documents on file for them because we know, like, from experience being out there that it's one of those things that it just happens. I mean, people lose this stuff. It, it does get thrown away. It also gets stolen. It's a major, major hur- hurdle for people that are living on the street. Do the city's homeless sweeps and the arrests of homeless people, do they make your job harder by destroying trust? They definitely can. It can come down to the fact that like we can't find our clients sometimes when they're arrested or when their area is swept. You know, they move to different areas that we're unfamiliar with. Maybe their phone was thrown away. We can't contact them anymore. It can damage trust, too. I mean, you know, when you're living on the street, sometimes you don't really have an idea of what's going on. So you might see the police roll up right after path just as a coincidence, you know, and, and we have had that instance where we're talking to a client and they're saying, oh, you guys are connected to the police, right? And we're not. But we do have to, like, kind of rebuild that trust. And sometimes that trust can be affected by the timing of sweeps. What gives you the greatest satisfaction in your outreach work? Man, watching somebody move into housing after 20 or 30 years on the street and them expressing the joy of being somewhere that's safe, you know, especially our our most vulnerable clients, you know, just 
seeing that happen is a pretty amazing experience. And, you know, we, we've worked with some clients that, you know, when we met them first, you know, they told us like, Hey, you know, when I first met you, I didn't think I would ever move in. And in fact, I was just kind of going along with it, but it actually happened. And I mean, that's incredible, you know, and, and just seeing that happen is it definitely propels you forward because the job can be really tough sometimes, you know, it's not all wins. And I really just try to remind my staff like, Hey, you know, like, Take pride in what you do, and even the smallest accomplishments make a big difference to people who are living on the street. Well, I've been speaking with Nate Dressel, an outreach program manager with PATH. Nate, thanks for what you do, and thank you for speaking with us. Thank you, Maureen. I really appreciate it. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Rates of depression among local youth have been on the rise for the last decade, according to San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services. The pandemic has only exacerbated the problem, not only here, but across the state. In California, rates of anxiety and depression among children shot up by 70 percent between 2016 and 2020. Suicide rates increased by 20 percent in 2020 alone. And in many places, there just aren't enough mental health professionals to meet the needs of youth. Joining me is Amy Bentliff, who works in this space as a developmental psychologist with a focus on adolescent mental health and well-being with UCSD. Amy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You know, as school starts back, we get a better understanding of what students are struggling with. Uh, can you talk about what you're seeing and what's driving these issues? We're seeing students that are grieving. We've had a large number of students who have lost, if not their father or mother, other caregivers and family members. So there's a lot of grief. We also have disconnection where students are just feeling disconnected from community, even from their schools. There's also a sense of loneliness that's occurred because of the pandemic, but has continued as youth are coming back to school. So these problems are really difficult, especially the disengagement. When students are having mental health crises, their engagement with school drops. And it's really hard to reconnect them because their brain is actually going through a lot. So we have to find a way that we can welcome them back and get them connected again with their schools, with their peers, and with our communities. And all of that highlights the need for mental health professionals in schools and the community, but there just aren't enough. You're a former teacher from where you sit. Uh, why do you think that is? 
one of the reasons has been that this situation of mental health has been documented clearly over the years and we just haven't listened. So as systems in California, there's been advocacy for years around these issues, but there were always other pressing concerns. I think that the high standards on testing has made a big difference because if a school district has to make a decision to hire a teacher or to hire a counselor, they're put in a bind because of the mandated testing and they'll make the choice to hire a teacher because that will um, help them to reach some of those testing goals. And so I think that schools have been put in a difficult situation because of lack of funding and just because a lack of focus on these issues. What the pandemic has really done is that the anxiety and suicidality has been on the rise across communities. So from an equity perspective, more affluent parents are getting involved in this. And when we think about equity situations, as soon as these problems start to transfer throughout multiple groups, advocacy becomes louder. Hmm. You know, it's it's been difficult for schools to meet the needs of students, but what are teachers and counselors dealing with? Teachers and counselors are dealing with a lot of compassion fatigue. We did a two-year study with teachers in San Diego Unified and around the county. And one of the things that teachers were really forced to do is, is to find ways to support social emotional needs of students. And they were really on the front lines both teachers and counselors, of listening to to students and their concerns. Um, That built up. So we have teachers that are also suffering from anxiety and depression. We have teachers and counselors that were really overworked during this time and also had the stressors that we've all experienced with getting COVID, um, sometimes multiple times, and also worrying about their friends and family. Governor Gavin Newsom announced the state is going to invest $4.7 billion for mental health support for youth across the state. And to address some of the issues you've mentioned, where do you see that funding needed most right now? I think that the goal to hire more counselors and to provide support for students who are interested in going into school counseling is one great step. I think some of the community school initiatives are really brilliant. How do we go back to creating these neighborhood centers? I think the other thing that would be wonderful is to focus more funding on before and after school programming. We also need to focus on prevention. So what are the systemic issues that are driving some of these things? This isn't appearing out of the blue. It's very connected to social inequalities that we're seeing across the board in California. And you touched on equity earlier. So how can needs be met in a way that creates equity? That's a really good question because we know that adolescents and children are really struggling across the board. But again, this this situation has been growing and developing over time. And we know that students of color are also facing equity issues regarding just the police brutality that they might have seen. There's a lot of stigma even around Asian American students right now. So in addition to all these initiatives, we also have to supply community education around issues of equity. Students don't attend school in isolation. They're attending from communities. 
And so part of what we have to do is to really engage stakeholders in decreasing these equity issues. I've been speaking with Amy Bentliff, a developmental psychologist with a focus on adolescent mental health and well-being with UCSD. Amy, thank you. Thank you for having me. Stem cell research has proven to be a valuable area for scientific advances in understanding and treating many diseases. And last week, UC San Diego announced a $150 million gift for stem cell research, not only here on Earth, but also expanding it above the clouds aboard the International Space Station. Here to tell us more about the scientific possibilities from low Earth orbit is Dr. Katrina Jamison, director of the UC San Diego Sanford Stem Cell Institute. Dr. Jamison, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here this afternoon, Jade. What are stem cells and why are they an important area of medical research? So stem cells are the regenerating factories in each one of our tissues in our body. Uh, Stem cells are responsible for repair and regeneration of our tissues when they get injured. And so they're really vitally important for maintaining our lifespan, but also our quality of life. And I guess the, the most important stem cell saying this as a hematologist, a blood doctor, is the hematopoietic or blood forming stem cell, which is in our bone marrow and can give rise to all the different different cell types in our blood. So that's just an example of a tissue-specific stem cell. Very important. What types of illnesses do stem cells have the most potential to help treat? Well, stem cells have the potential to help treat a broad array of degenerative disorders in the blood, in the liver, and in the brain. For example, Parkinson's disease, ALS, you know, these really debilitating degenerative diseases. If we understand how stem cells work in the brain, neural stem cells, if we understand how they work in the liver, these liver progenitors or daughter cells of stem cells, and how they work in the bone marrow, then we can intercede, predict and prevent disease development in a broad array of um, diseases, but including cancer. If you think of the number one cause of death in this country is cardiovascular disease, a lot has been learned about how stem cells work in myocardial tissue, but also how they work in cancer. There are cells called cancer stem cells that really allow a cancer to clone itself. And that's where some of the biggest advances have actually been made in stem cell research, knowing that cancer can hijack stem cell properties to really be able to invade and spread to other parts of the body. So that's been a a huge advance, understanding stem cell properties in cancer, which is the number two cause of death in this country. You know, many years ago, there had been some controversy about using stem cells in research. President George W. Bush at one point banned federal funding in that area, though that was later revoked. Can you remind us what that debate was about? Yeah, I think the debate was about uh, human embryonic stem cell research. And actually, interestingly, uh, President Bush at the time um, approved more cell lines, uh, human embryonic stem cell derived cell lines than had been used in the past, actually. So it expanded opportunities. It just made it clear what the guidelines were for using uh, stem cells that were, you know, no longer going to be useful. They would be discarded from fertility clinics. So I I think um, that debate 
debate became less of the debate. The bigger deal was to be able to make therapies by understanding stem cell properties of different tissues. How do we enhance the capacity of different tissues to repair and regenerate themselves? And that has been the biggest challenge over the last 10 years of having stem cell funding in the state. And how do we bring in new partners that are accustomed to developing new technologies with alacrity, you know, very, very quickly to make sure that we stop cancer in his tracks, stop cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative diseases in their tracks. That's something I'm reminded of as that sense of urgency being really supremely important, having just come off call for the inpatient hematology service. You've recently announced a new donation that will help bring a laboratory aboard the International Space Station. Why is studying stem cells above the Earth so intriguing? Well, what we realized in looking at the NASA twin study that was published in Science, where Scott and Mark Kelly had different amounts of time and space as astronauts. Scott Kelly was in space for almost a year. His brother Mark had spent far less time in space also as a NASA astronaut. They're identical twins. Scott Kelly came back with pre-leukemic changes in his blood, activation of this enzyme called telomerase that Elizabeth Blackburn discovered. And that is how we keep the ends of our chromosomes intact. It looked like it was too active. And we see that as an early warning sign for cancer. So then we started thinking, wait a minute, maybe Maybe stem cell stress is a big driver of accelerated aging and tissue degeneration that we could study in an abbreviated time frame in space. And we got this $5 million grant from NASA to study stem cell aging in space. And so we've been doing those experiments in space since December 2020. We've actually had six stem cell launches into space. And so far, what we've seen is what looks like accelerated aging and pre-malignant changes that we think are related to that uniquely stressful environment in space that seems to recapitulate about 10 years of aging in a one-month time frame on the International Space Station. So that's important because it allows us to understand how stem cell aging occurs, but in an abbreviated time frame. And number two, it allows us to develop what are called countermeasures by NASA. So we can predict and prevent this accelerated aging and pre-cancer development before it becomes a big issue. And can we develop not only diagnostics, but therapeutic strategies to prevent that? And of course, that's going to have a lot of value on Earth, not just in low Earth orbit. All of this sounds so hopeful. I have been speaking with Dr. Katrina Jameson, Director of the UC San Diego Sanford Stem Cell Institute. And Dr. Jameson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Most Californians are feeling the effects of the drought, but in big areas of the state where people rely on groundwater, the pain of this drought is especially severe. Wells are going dry and there's intense competition to find more water that's underground. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez wanted to see what that looked like, so he took a trip to the San Joaquin Valley to find out. I'm standing by a mobile drilling rig in a rural area about 30 miles north of Fresno. I can see and feel the drill pipe rotating as it burrows deeper and deeper into the earth in search of untapped reservoirs of groundwater. If it's found, the water will be used by nearby homeowners whose first well has gone dry. And like many people in this part of California who aren't hooked up to municipal water systems, no well water means no water, period. Daniel Reese is the drilling supervisor here. 
this area here, we won't realistically, we will not hit water until about 38400. 38400 feet. Yes, that's a fortunate side. Unfortunate, Reese says, because in the past, drilling to such depths to find groundwater would have been rare. These existing wells from these homes 15, 25 years ago were only drilled down to about 200, 300 max. Why drill deeper to hit water? Well, drought, of course. Both the one we're in and past ones. Less rain means it's harder for aquifers to get recharged. So there's a kind of race in the San Joaquin Valley now between property owners and farmers to drill deeper and tap the water that remains. In a sense, a lot of straws are going into the ground to get to that water. And some people win and some people lose. The deepest straw gets the water. That's absolutely how it works. That's Tom Collishaw of Visalia-based Self-Help Enterprises. It's a nonprofit that provides emergency water services and low-interest loans for private well construction in the San Joaquin Valley. Collishaw says one huge challenge is the soaring cost of drilling, as demand increases and plentiful groundwater is more difficult to find. And well drilling right now, just a domestic well on a single-family household uh, lot, is costing $60,000 where three years ago, maybe we were paying $25,000. So what do you do if you can't afford a drill or you need to wait until a drilling crew arrives? That's when many put in giant tanks filled with trucked-in water. So we're installing a temporary 2,500-gallon water tank. Uh, and we'll get them temporary water until they can come up with a permanent solution for water, either be a new well or connection to some sort of city infrastructure, which I don't think is out here, so... That's water tank installation contractor Brandon Jones. He says his company installs as many as five tanks a day. When I meet him, he and his crew are at a home east of Isalia. The homeowner, Michelle, who doesn't want her last name used, says she hasn't had water since June when her well went dry. Uh, What's it like when a well goes dry? It was you turn on the faucet and nothing came out. Michelle is happy the tank is finally here, so she and her family can bathe, flush toilets, and cook. But... This is a band-aid until we're able to drill a new well and hopefully find water. And when does that work start, do you hope, or do you think? Well, when we get people to call us back and actually come give us an estimate, we'll know. Oh, really? Because it's just so hard to get through, there's right? So, there are so many people in the same situation that everyone is extremely busy. But another problem, even if a property owner or community drills a successful well, the water that's found could be contaminated. That's been a years-long issue in mostly poor and Latino communities in the valley, like Ducor, population just over 600. There's groundwater here, but the water's too dangerous to consume because of decades of pesticide runoff from agriculture. I talk about that with resident Eliseo Aldaco as he waters his yard. It's water that's safe for the plants, but not to drink. No, can't drink it. You can maybe even smell it. So what do you do for drinking water? Just, um... Buy bottled water, and that's just a constant thing. I mean, that's yeah. It. I mean, every 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 week, yeah. You got to buy the water for the week. So, what's ahead for the San Joaquin Valley and the quantity and quality of its groundwater? Well, cleanup efforts of tainted aquifers are slow or non-existent. The state is also implementing a massive groundwater management plan, but that will take years to see results. Meanwhile, the search for increasingly scarce groundwater continues. Back at his drilling site, Daniel Reese says he has a long line of desperate customers who are waiting. 
I'm averaging right now five to six months out. That's actually a pretty decent number. We're, we're pushing it. We're pushing it. But Reese says he cautions his clients that just because he drills, it doesn't mean the water will actually be found, no matter how deep he goes. That was Saul Gonzalez for the California Report. A new rhino calf at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park represents another step in the effort to save a related rhino species that's nearly extinct. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson explains. The baby rhino begins the day leading mom Livia around the closed-off rhino habitat on the eastern side of the park. Yeah, he has a bundle of energy, which is all typical rhino calf behaviors. Wildlife care specialist Johnny Capiro is accustomed to watching the young animals zoom around the enclosure, usually with mom lumbering close behind. He's really playful and confident. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that mom is so confident um, and feeling good about her role as a mom. And of course, all that running makes a romp in the mud even better. Kapira says that mud bath cools the animal down, protects it from the sun's harsh rays, and keeps bugs off its hide. The baby weighed more than 100 pounds at birth and is already more than twice that size. And while the calf is cute and attracting attention, researchers are celebrating the birth because it's the first for mom Livia. She now joins two other southern white rhino females at the park out of a herd of six, that have proven they can give birth and care for offspring. Barbara Durant is the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance's Director of Reproductive Services. She says the six females were brought here in 2015 to teach researchers about rhino reproduction. We knew vaguely what the rhino cycle was like from the animals that were breeding here in our field habitats, but we didn't know the details. That's critical because these six females could one day be surrogate moms to the closely related northern white rhino. That species is on the precipice of extinction thanks to war and poaching. An aging mom and her daughter are the only northern white rhinos on the planet. Both are too old to breed, so surrogates could be a lifeline to keep the northern whites from going extinct. That goal for all of us, all of us working on this project, is a self-sustaining herd of northern white rhinos that we can reintroduce into native habitat. San Diego researchers hope to do that by implanting an embryo of a northern white rhino into one of the proven moms. If the pregnancy is successful, the result would be a northern white calf. But it's complicated and unprecedented. The Wildlife Alliance's Carla Young is one of the researchers pioneering the techniques. Some steps are as basic as figuring out how to make the Petri dish culture that cloned, fertilized rhino eggs will grow in. We've sort of taken protocols that we've learned for the horse and other protocols that I've learned using domestic cat, um, deer, even human. And we've taken all those protocols and um, this is how we made the maturation media for the rhino because no one's ever done this sort of work before. Eventually, Young will use frozen northern white rhino cells to create sperm and eggs. Each egg will be the shell of a southern white with the northern white cellular material inside. I have no doubt that we can produce northern white rhino embryos with a southern white rhino um, host oocyte. 
I just hope in the near future we could do an embryo transfer and figure out um, our technique to, to do this and, and actually be able to produce a northern white rhino calf. But challenges remain. Barbara Durant says researchers want proof of concept in the field with southern white rhinos before they tap their limited supply of northern white cells. But creating the embryo is only half the battle. There's never been a successful embryo transfer in any rhino species. Durant says there has been steady incremental progress. Two females in San Diego did get pregnant from artificial insemination. The team knows more about rhino reproduction. And three females are now candidates to have a southern white rhino embryo implanted. But Durant says the clock is ticking. The northern white rhino is so close to extinction now that there's a very real possibility that before we have a northern white rhino calf, that both of these females will be gone. And that will be bringing back an extinct species. The work being done with southern and northern white rhinos in San Diego could still prove invaluable to other species, like the Sumatran rhino, which only has a population of about 60 animals. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. There is a new show coming to the fall lineup on KPBS. This one will take you on adventures to wineries, restaurants, and breweries from the comfort of your home to hear the stories of women and trailblazers of color. It's called Fresh Glass. The wine and beer industries are growing, and now women in BIPOC communities are joining in, (laughs) creating their own brands and making a name for themselves. Cheers. Travel with me to meet these innovators. Find out why they started, what drives them, and how representation is the cornerstone of their passion. Never shied away from change. I'm creating a space for people who look like me to share their stories and their spirits. This is Fresh Glass. I spoke with Cassandra Shag, host and founder of Sip Wine and Beer. I started by asking what inspired the series. Yes, uh, well, I'm glad to be a part of the KPBS family, and I'm and I'm honored and privileged to be able to have this, sh- you know, shown uh, on KPBS. But Fresh Glass is a docu series that we created during COVID. Uh, it was it was grown out of the virtual wine tastings that were taking place. Uh, during COVID while we were sitting at home. And and so I was able to connect with, um, you know, my collaborators and a lot of women in BIPOC winemakers and brewmasters who were doing phenomenal things to stay afloat. Uh, and we decided to create a show called Fresh Glass to highlight and share those stories because entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. And here we are. Here we are. You know, I mean, this is really a continuation of what you do with Sip Wine Bar, which is your tasting room in Escondido. 
um, where you elevate brands created by women and people of color. Talk about that and, and why it's so important to you. Yeah. So I opened Sip Wine and Beer in 2016. Uh, I cannot believe I am, what, five, six years in business. And this tasting room and event space is dedicated to elevating brands created by women and BIPOC winemakers and brewmasters. Uh, The industry is uh, underrepresented when it comes to winemakers and brewmasters, with 2% being women and less than 1% being people of color. And so with the community support, I've been able to showcase those brands and drive economic impact to these niche brands that are making boutique phenomenal wine and beer. I mean, so what got you interested in wine and, and how did it become a, a vehicle to, to sort of elevate uh, these trailblazers of color? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I love drinking wine. Uh, I grew up in Temecula and through my exploration of traveling uh, and in my professional journey, you know, we've been drinking, I've been drinking a lot of wine. And so to hear the stories um, of people behind the bottle and really what it takes to make wine and beer is phenomenal. And I just took a risk. I moved to Escondido uh, and I decided to open a wine and beer tasting room that showcases community culture and conversation. And thankfully, the city of Escondido was very welcoming um, and warming to my idea. And so I'm still here. So when people tune in to Fresh Glass, what can they expect to see? Uh, they can expect to see me traveling throughout California to some um, of the state's uh, phenomenal wineries and breweries, and of course, a couple that are local. Uh, you get to hear the stories of entrepreneurs who who have the grit and the perseverance to create their own rule book um, for entrepreneurship and to really make things happen uh, in a space that that where there's a lot of people that don't look like me. Uh, And you also get to learn about phenomenal wine and beers that are being made and a little bit about the process. Um, My goal is to take, you know, that that connotation that wine is something that's supposed to be for people who are wealthy uh, and to really explore the facets of wine and beer with viewers. And I also want to make sure that the people we are highlighting um, also get the, you know, the recognition that they deserve as well. They have worked hard. Uh, they have been at their craft for 10, 15, 20 years, and the recognition that they deserve is due. And I'm just honored in that these people have entrusted me to share their story and journey. When working on the show, was there any um, one story or one person that you interviewed that really inspired you? Yes. Uh, you know, one story... Uh, that stands out to me is um, Tara Gomez, who is the only Native American woman winemaker in the country. And she was also honored as 2021 uh, Winemaker of the Year by Vine Pair. Uh, she's been making wine for her tribe. Um, her whole life has been, sent, has been spent making wine. And, you know, she's like the quiet person who just dedicates to her craft Uh, And her wine is very popular uh, in San Diego. Her brands are Kita and Kameens to Dreams. And she's also the pilot episode of Fresh Glass. You know you're the only Native American woman winemaker in the country, right? It's an awesome feeling. I'm honored and I'm proud to represent my tribe. So the reason why her story sticks out is because she's the only Native American woman to do it. And, And that has to be a hard road when you're the only one 
trying to perfect your craft. So ultimately, when people see your show, what do you hope people walk away with? I really hope people walk away uh, being inspired, um, having a different worldview of the wine, beer, and the food scene, um, making sure that they are supporting uh, women in BIPOC brands and women of people of color in the wine, beer, and food space because it is detrimental uh, that they get that support in order to continue pushing forward uh, and that you find, you figure out new places to travel to. Um, you know, there's so many, there's so many wineries in California and in San Diego and to be able to visit wineries and breweries that are local uh, and throughout the state is great for, you know, the economic drive. So I hope people tune in uh, and get inspired. All right. I've been speaking with Cassandra Shag, host of Fresh Glass and founder of Sip Wine and Beer. Thank you so much for joining us, Cassandra. Cheers to you and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Fresh Glass will air on Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. from September 15th through October 20th on KPBS television with encores airing throughout the year and streams online and on the PBS video app. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.